discussion with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can watch me on Instagram Live or call in for Wednesday's show. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Think Again by Adam Grant. Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know by Adam Grant. This book just came out last Tuesday, so I was happy to, to pre-order it and get it as soon as it um, arrived and to share it with you on next Monday's show. But the title, Think Again, um, from what I read about the book very briefly, in some ways it's asking us to rethink what we think we know or to be aware that oftentimes we have to unlearn things and recognize that as much as we think we know something, um, we actually might not know. And I think that's a very important lesson and message for us to have now when we are so divided and so uh, you know, polarized in what we think and believe and we are so convinced that we know the truth when very often in most of the issues that we're thinking about or all the issues of life, we don't really have a set truth or we should recognize we probably aren't as sure as we think we are. Or we might think we're sure, but what we uh, know actually might not be so certain. So looking forward to reading that book and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Chatter by Ethan Kroos. Chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters, and how to harness it. And this was really an interesting book. You know, we we have a voice in our heads. We all do. And, uh, you know, recognizing that it exists, and also he talks about why it might exist, but also how we can, as the title or subtitle says, harness it to our benefit. And even that title, Chatter, is essentially... Uh, a term or word he uses for when our inner voice goes wrong or when it turns into this chatter, it keeps gnawing at us or um, kind of takes us in a negative direction. And so looking at ways to overcome that. And so he shares, uh, Dr. Ethan Cross in this book, his own experience with chatter, as he describes it, when he had received a letter after being on the news talking about one of his research studies, and he got some not just hate mail, essentially a death threat as a letter in uh, in his faculty or his uh, um, his mail at the the university, University of Michigan, and it, it sent him off into a tailspin where he was worrying and he found himself stressing out. This person had said that he was threatening essentially uh, him, and I forgot if he threatened his family, but very really horrible things and he started getting afraid and he found himself um, he couldn't go to sleep he was pacing downstairs he said uh, holding a little league baseball bat he was just so scared to go to sleep he was looking into maybe could he even get security guards or um, bodyguards for professors if something like that even existed and and anyway but he shares his own experience where uh, he couldn't stop the voice in his head that was 
worried and scared. And, and later on, I might talk about uh, something he did unintentionally that actually shifted what he was going through. But so looking at this inner voice, why we might have it, he shared some, I don't know if you want to call them thoughts or insights on that, looking at working memory. So um, working memory is essentially what we use to be able to complete a task or stay on task. It's also what we use to, let's say, memorize a phone number. You use those numbers and you might repeat them in your head. And essentially, that's where the inner voice comes through. So as uh, he talks about here, um, part of the working memory is uh, an aspect of it that focuses on verbal information, which is called the phonological loop. And the phonological loop includes both the inner ear, and this is essentially uh, part that repeats the words or the things that were just said, so we're still hearing them in our head. And you might even notice this, um, let's say when I'm speaking now or when someone talks, you still hear it a little bit in your head afterwards, even to the effect that a speaker themselves, I've obviously done it many times, where I'll misspeak and I'll actually hear it myself maybe a second after or maybe not even a second after that and realize I misspoke and, and correct myself. So there's that that part, the inner ear, but then um, the, so that's the inner, yeah, the inner ear, which helps us retain the words we've just heard. And then the inner voice, uh, which allows us to repeat words in our head. Um, and so that's essentially where that inner voice comes from. And we also use this inner voice. We see toddlers using this inner voice. Um, people might have thought before it was, oh, this is just silly, or they talk to themselves. But there was a well-known Soviet psychologist, Lev Vygotsky, in the early 20th century, who actually thought that this was um, some aspect of emotional control. And so that's an interesting dynamic, a way of looking at it, rather than, oh, they just just talk to themselves because they're unsophisticated, that actually they might be um, actually using that to help control their emotions or talk to themselves. So we see that we have this uh, inner voice and that it's an important aspect of our lives. You know, we all talk to ourselves. Sometimes people, we think of talking to yourself, meaning that you're crazy, which uh, I think is unfortunate to think of anyone in that way, but we think it means something really bad, but we're always talking to ourselves. Sometimes you might even audibly talk to yourself. Sometimes it might just be in your head, but neither one of those would mean that you are, let's say, experiencing psychosis or not sure about, um, you know, if it's your voice or someone else's. That's actually one of the key issues. Unfortunately, some people, the inner voice, they don't recognize it as coming from within. They think it's coming from the outside. And so they think it's Sometimes it's the voice of God. It could be someone else, some demon, so many different things. But unfortunately, they don't recognize that that voice is coming from within. So we all have this inner voice. And um, as the, the book, the title mentions, we want to see how can we use this to our advantage. And this book, I'll, I'll quickly say this as I continue talking about it. It does a great job of weaving in lots of research, stories, but also some practical advice or tools, as he also calls them, uh, that we can all use that I, I hopefully will get to share some of those with you today. Uh, so he does share first how the, the inner voice can go wrong or, or work against us. And that's really, again, like I said, chatter is that term that he's using. Unfortunately, when 
We've all been there before. You, you can't shake some thinking in your head or you keep uh, repeating something in your head or uh, ruminating over something. He shares the story of a pitcher, Rick Ankiel, who um, he was pitching in a, a high-profile uh, game, a playoff game, and he threw a wild pitch, which is basically when a pitcher it means they really didn't hit the target well at all. So in baseball, if you're familiar, the pitcher is throwing the ball to the catcher, trying to avoid the hitter from hitting it, but also trying to put it in a certain range so that it could be a strike or not, you know, too outside um, the the playing field or where they want it there. But a wild pitch is when it it just doesn't quite go where they want it to go. And this happens. The best pitchers um, will sometimes do this. But uh, unfortunately, he kind of broke down Ankiel and he had this... Um, uh, you know, his inner voice was starting to talk to him and it backfired. And, and he actually was, uh, he does share how his father was um, verbally and physically abusive. And I think this likely had some impact on that inner voice, which I might talk about later on the show. But so he got stuck in this uh, chatter and he threw another wild pitch and another one. I think he threw four pitches or five pitches in a row, something really horrible. Eventually he had to be taken out of the game. Yeah, he threw five wild pitches in one inning. Um, and then he pitched nine days later, and again, he was doing that. It was almost like, it seems like if you're watching something like this, someone has unlearned something that they were doing. And so he had this negative self-talk that was going on, but as uh, Dr. Kroos uh, explains, um, what he also was doing something called delinking. So when we're doing something that we've learned that has become automatic, it's interesting because it's almost like we have to get out of our own way and that if we think too much, you actually don't do it right. You have to let yourself do it. So unfortunately, what he was doing, this picture was he was going over the mechanics in detail. And if and he was trying to essentially break it down and pitch again um, the way he usually does. But by breaking it down, he was delinking all those steps to happen naturally. And he was just unable to do it. And it's heartbreaking, but um, it's not really a spoiler alert because his career ended years ago. But uh, he didn't pitch again. He actually, though, learned after a few years to come back and play as an outfielder, different position in baseball. So in some ways, he was able to overcome what he went through. But uh, early in the book, uh, he shares, Dr. Crow, some examples of when that inner voice can backfire. And we all can do that. Now, I do want to mention something else about... Um, the inner voice and a point that I, I found interesting that he made in the book. So I've talked about the issue of mindfulness or that topic many times on this show. It's a very important aspect of mental health, being present, being mindful. We, you know, you can do meditation, which it's, it's an exercise, but it also can help you become more mindful. Um, but something I've also thought about is if you really do think about it, we don't want to be only in the moment. I think most of us want to strive to be more in the moment that we than we are, but really to live a good life, we have to be able to sometimes think about the past and think about the future as well, which sometimes is made to seem as a really bad thing. It's no, 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 you shouldn't be thinking about the past, that leads to depression. You shouldn't be thinking about the future, that leads to anxiety. And it can do those things, but it wouldn't make sense to never think about the past or the future. We have to learn from our experiences, even the ways we 
create relationships and form our connections, it, it relates to the memories we've created with our loved ones, the people around us. And we have to plan for the future. You can't just stay in the moment. Sometimes I think of that if it's taken to an extreme, how could you really manage your life if you were just staying in the moment? You would, you know, have an appointment, but you would be so in the moment that you wouldn't think to look at the time or do anything else, let's say, and now it's three hours later and you say, I heard someone say the time, so I realized I have to come to my appointment. And so here I am. I'm so in the moment, so present. So um, our inner voice actually very often is in the past and in the future, but that's not an all bad thing. We actually do need that inner voice uh, to, to guide us in that way. So he shares about when the inner voice goes wrong, so to speak, but then he talks about tools we can use to help us overcome um, the inner voice or to use it in, in, in better ways. So uh, as I said, he shares his own experience, which I thought was interesting. He said, you know, here I am someone who studies how we should um, use our inner voice. And I found myself in an embarrassing situation, holding my little league baseball bat or holding a little league baseball bat, you know, worried that someone was going to be outside or seeing someone when someone wasn't there. So the first example of things he talks about are zooming out. And so when we are sometimes stuck in the issue that we're dealing with, we can get too fixated on where we are. And what can actually benefit us is to zoom out sometimes almost literally in our visualization. So for example, they've done some research where they ask people to become like a fly on the wall looking at a memory. So sometimes we get stuck in a rumination. You keep thinking about an old memory or an experience, something that happened, and you feel like you can't shake it and you keep looking at it or thinking about it over and over again. Something that you can do that will be helpful at times is to imagine you're like a fly on the wall watching this thing that is happening to you. And this is actually interesting because in some ways this zooming out, it's almost like taking yourself away from the experience or creating some space in the experience. And I think when I look at different aspects of life or different areas where this shows up, we can see that being too much in ourself can be a problem. When we care too much about our unique experience, even though it is important, I think that can lead to some issues where we get too attached to things that are going on and it makes it harder to let go. And so to me, it was interesting seeing this research where people actually watch themselves from a distance or even keep zooming out when they are seeing a memory of themselves. And actually that helps them deal with it easier. So we do better when we have a little bit of space and perspective when we're dealing with something. And so this is one of the tools of our inner voice or dealing with our inner voice is to actually take a step back or zoom out. Imagine yourself watching yourself in the memory rather than being first person in it. Um, this, sometimes he talks about this. There are the immersers, people who are so stuck in the experience. And then there's people who the distancers who, who take some um, space away from it. And the distancers tend to deal better with it. And, and sometimes when you've just experienced something, you're so immersed in it, you can't actually distance yourself yet. And I'll get to that a little bit later too. When we, um, after the break, I'll talk about when you're venting, when you are um, sharing your experience, we usually think of venting as something good, but 
there's some types of venting or if it just ends at venting that actually are not helpful. So I get, I'll get to those as well, but I'll continue the discussion after the break on the book Chatter by Ethan Kroos. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing the discussion on the book Chatter by Ethan Kroos. Um, so as I was mentioning before the break, sometimes creating a little bit of distance can be good when we are trying to experience past memories, especially when we can be too stuck in it. It could be good to be like a fly on the wall or even zoom out further. Uh, people notice that if they kept zooming out, the, the negative feelings tended to become a little less, again, distancing rather than just immersing. Uh, he shared something he, that he said him and his colleagues uh, called the Solomon's Paradox. And this is essentially when we, uh, and you've probably all experienced it, as he says, we can say it of almost anyone and even some great figures, we're very good at giving advice, but sometimes we might not be good at taking that same advice. So people will say, oh, I'm so good at helping my friends through their problems, but I might even deal with that same problem and not handle it so well. Uh, to me, that's an interesting thing on a few accounts. One is to keep that in mind because everyone's problems seem easy from the outside. So um, both in two ways. One is just because you're not experiencing it also sometimes because that's not your issue. So if someone uh, has no problems with procrastination, they might say, oh, it's so easy not to procrastinate. I never do it. But you might, you probably have your own issue. But the other thing is um, when you're thinking about a problem, it's easy to look at it and say, do this. But when you're in it, it's very different. So uh, King Solomon from the Bible, he was a very wise person in giving people advice. But as they share, he shares um, made some mistakes in his own personal life that led to issues. And so we all tend to be this way, but we can try to use this to our advantage by looking at some of our own issues and imagining you're giving advice to a friend. Um, what would you tell a friend to do or how would you handle that? Even this related to self-talk, um, we'll use this in therapy as a technique to say, well, what would you say to your friend if they were in that same situation? Sometimes we can be so punitive and hard on ourselves. And then if I say, well, if your friend went through that same thing or if they did that same thing, what would you tell them? And most of the time people would be much more kind and loving. So unfortunately, we often aren't very kind to ourselves. Maybe another version of the Solomon's Paradox, but in a different way in that we tend to be more loving to our friends, family members than we are to ourselves when it comes to things we've done or, or how we just talk to ourselves in general. So that's another interesting thing that we can do is to imagine um, what it's like uh, if we were telling a friend was dealing with that. You know, also he mentions time travel, so not literally time travel, but going in the past or going in the future. Again, this is where staying in the moment doesn't necessarily mean you always have to just stay present in that way. And we sometimes want to look at things differently. Thinking in the future um, can be a helpful tool. Um, for example, thinking, well, how will I feel uh, a month or a year or 10 years from now about what's going on now? That perspective can be helpful. But I do think about how we have to be careful how you use these things, especially if you're telling someone else, because sometimes people might use this to undermine someone else's pain, especially if it's just happening. Um, when something is happening, it, it hurts. I actually thought of an analogy. It's like saying if someone has a cut and it's bleeding to be like, oh, don't worry. And, you know, a month that cut will be fully healed. So you don't have to care about it right now or or don't say it hurts. It still hurts right now. Um, that perspective can be good. But when you're still bleeding, when you're still hurting, it can sometimes be hard to go there. 
But when you are finding yourself worrying about something or thinking about something, it can be good to think about that. You're going through a breakup and you're in a lot of pain. It doesn't mean deny your pain. I think it's very important to experience your pain and be with it. But you can't think of how six months from now, a year from now, very likely you won't feel this way anymore. Or you can think of a past breakup and how when it happened, it felt so painful. You felt like you would never get over it. You were in so much heartbreak and heartache, but you got better now or you don't even think of that person or that experience anymore. So you're okay. So that can be uh, something important to keep in mind. Now, another interesting one, and he experiences himself, he said when he was that night, he was holding the bat so scared is saying your own name. So for me, rather than just saying, I need to do this, I need to do that, but to say, hey, Farid, what are you doing right now? Or are you okay? And he even said to himself, Ethan, what are you doing? This is crazy. And that actually got him out of things. And then there's research that he shares that when we um, say our own name, or talk to ourselves rather than saying me or I as you or saying your name, as I said, that actually also helps us create, I think, a little bit of space that makes it easier for us to deal with the thoughts that we're having or what's going on in our minds. So it's interesting. People, um, they'll ask them to give a talk. It's one of the common um, research where they're trying to create stress, a type of stress that's manageable, but does make people feel stressed. They say, hey, they walk in and they'll tell someone in five minutes, you're going to give a speech in front of people. And so public speaking tends to be something that people feel anxious about. And then sometimes they'll use that as a way to test different techniques for dealing with stress. And so when people were asked to use techniques or question in a way that made them say, I, 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 they tended to be more stressed than people that were saying you or saying their name when talking to themselves. So that could be something also to keep in mind. Um, it's another one of those where you might think you sound crazy if you're saying your own name to yourself or calling yourself you, but that's okay. This is actually how we can communicate with ourselves in a way that might be helpful. So that's an interesting one to say your own name rather than um, to talk to yourself as saying I. And he shares the story of Fred Rogers, as many of us know him, Mr. Rogers. And to me, this was quite interesting, a letter he essentially wrote to himself. Um, he had done the show for a while and then took a break for, I don't know, maybe a few years. I don't know how long that was. But anyway, he was really having some self-doubt. And so in this letter, you hear him saying, am I kidding myself that I'm able to write a script again? Um, I wonder if... If I don't get down to it, I'll never really know. And then by the end of it, though, then he says, get to it, Fred, get to it. And so I thought it was interesting. First of all, um, if you've heard me talk about him before, Fred Rogers is one of my heroes, someone I really admire because he, um, I, I watched him as a child all the time. Uh, but I also really admire that through kindness and love that he showed in his shows and what his teachings were, he was able to make such a big impact. And I think that's quite remarkable. But I think it's also for me, normalizing, and that's another thing he talks about in the book, when you see these great figures, people you admire, and recognize that they also at times doubted themselves. Sometimes we see someone and we assume they're perfectly confident or always believed in themselves. Of course, they didn't doubt themselves, but 
that's actually almost never the case. Self-doubt is something that could creep in at different times uh, when we're having different experiences. And, and so for me to see that Fred Rogers, someone who I admired, was having self-doubt about doing the show that he did so incredibly um, was, was quite interesting. And he uh, went on to do the show, I think, 20-something years after he wrote that letter to himself when he was coming back. So uh, that was interesting to me. But you know, he said, get to it, Fred. So he talked himself in that way. And here, Dr. Kroos introduces also the idea of when looking at things what that we're facing either as a threat, which means I can't handle it. This could be something really terrible. And if we could reframe that and see it as a challenge, this can be very helpful in making us actually, rather than getting scared in a way, you almost get excited. You get motivated to do a challenge that you feel like you can, but it will be hard. A threat feels like something that you want to run away from. So that can be an important thing is to recognize if we can shift from a threat to a challenge, that can be very meaningful. Um, So, uh, you know, I mentioned normalizing. That's also a very important thing to say. Uh, or to do and you know a big part of therapy is normalizing people's experiences they say oh you know I'm feeling so anxious about this or I got so angry about this and you want to show them that this is a fairly universal experience as human beings we tend to experience these different things unfortunately very often we don't talk about many things in public so we don't realize that others are going through it as well um, but it is important to normalize that and even one way you can do that is the universal you Sometimes we're talking to ourselves like, you know what, sometimes you go through something tough and you might be talking to yourself, um, but you actually can be helping yourself recognize that what you're going through is normal and more universal. It's not just you that has this problem. Now, as I mentioned um, about venting, I wanted to talk about that. And that was an interesting aspect in this book that we, of course, when we're feeling stressed out, when something happens, we tend to want to turn to others. And that can be a good thing. We get emotional support from one another. But he shared something that was interesting in how we go about this process, both, of course, as the speaker who is venting, but also as the listener or the one who is giving the emotional support, because that's very important. And so there's a a section in the book, and it's called Kirk or Spock. And this is coming from Star Trek. So there's Captain Kirk, who is this very passionate, emotional person. And then there is Officer Spock, who has the pointy ears. Maybe you've seen him. He's half human, half Vulcan, but he's very, uh, really, he has no feelings. He's all logic. And so um, when we're giving someone support, as he puts it, you want to be a balance of Kirk and Spock, meaning that you want to meet the person's emotional needs, but you also want to meet some of their cognitive needs. So what does that mean? So the emotional needs is someone tells you, I'm so mad at this person, I can't believe they did this. And so this is what we can also think of as empathizing. So you are emotionally being there and staying with the feelings. Oh, I can see how you'd be upset by that. That includes some of the normalizing, validating, making them feel like you understand what they're going through. But the thing is what they found is if you only stay in that space, that can tend to actually make the person ruminate more, stay stuck in that space. So if you only say, that's horrible, that's horrible, that's horrible, um, that's not good to just stay there, only stay there, that can lead to an issue. What you want to do is after you have empathized and validated, you want to then switch to seeing how you can help them reframe what happened or even potentially plan how to go 
forward. And as he talks about, this is a very delicate balance and one that we will always get wrong, but we often do get wrong. We want to work on and be aware of. When do you switch from that? How do you make sure you don't stay too much in the emotion or how do you make sure you don't too quickly switch to the logical? He was sharing some research that oftentimes people stay in the emotional too long, which can be true. But my experience working with parents and working with husbands and wives and different uh, couples, I've seen that sometimes people go too quickly to the, the logical or the advice rather than staying with the feelings. And so what I always recommend to parents or even to partners is to empathize first. So that's the emotional part. Stay with them in the feeling. And then eventually, once they've cooled off a bit or once they've felt understood, validated, and safe, then you switch to the more cognitive side of things. And actually, if someone is so heated, they really can't go to the logical or planning side of things. And I think this is um, what is kind of interesting. Sometimes people try to do this, but imagine when you are at your most angry, someone told you to plan an eight-day trip of everything you're going to do. You can't do that when you're so raging, you're not going to be able to plan something. And even sometimes we can look at the brain circuitry and see when your brain is firing in that way, you're not going to be able to do something that's planning or more um, thinking ahead and thinking long term. So you need to first make sure the person is emotionally more calm, which means validating and staying with them. Unfortunately, what people often do is um, someone is emotional, we think I have to take away their emotions. So we think by logic, we're going to make them feel okay. So they're upset with a friend who said something mean, like, oh, you shouldn't care what people say. Don't worry about it. Why are you sad? He's nothing. Da, da, da. They go on and on, just trying to take away the feeling. And this usually does not work well. So what you want to do first is empathize, connect, show that you're there for them and with them and understand and validate their feelings. And then Again, that's where the timing, it's, there's no uh, magic rule, but then you want to see when is a good time to shift. And sometimes they might even lead you in that. And this is especially true when I talk with parents. Your child is upset, overwhelmed by something that happened. They are sad. And you might think I need to make them feel good immediately. Well, first, if they're upset, stay with them a little bit in that upset feeling. After a while, you might be able to plan with them and I say with them, so don't just tell them what to do, but give them some space to explore. So, oh, this kid said something mean at school. Okay, stay with them. I can see how that upset you. I can see how that bothered you. You stay with them a little bit. And once you've done that, now you can explore, well, what do you think you want to do tomorrow? And have them shift that. Or you might also help them shift in saying, what do you think he was thinking or feeling? that happened in that fight. So you're giving them perspective and teaching them some lessons. But if you quickly try to go to the lessons and the planning, they usually won't stay with you. They feel like you don't understand it. It might even blow up and you might think, oh, my kid's just being whatever, annoying. But your kid actually needs you to deal with their feelings first. So I thought that was interesting in using that analogy of um, Spock and uh, um, Captain Kirk. That was kind of an interesting balance of the emotional and the cognitive. Now, there's also some things he talks about in the book, like um, being in nature. And there's a lot of studies that show that when you're uh, in nature, it almost has like a mental recharging that it that it can experience. And I thought that was that was quite fascinating. Now, it doesn't mean you have to go camping for two weeks straight um, to get that benefit. Even they were doing some research and some of these people who lived 
closer to more trees um, might experience some benefit or they would compare people with more trees on their street versus people that didn't and that would have an impact. I thought that was quite interesting or even if you don't really have access to that looking at videos or pictures of nature can have that type of experience too, a kind of mental recharging of sorts. So I thought that was interesting, something that I think many people have experienced when you're in nature, you just feel some sense of calm, some sense of being restored. Um, And so there's research to back that up, even showing that it can affect your physical health, not just that kind of mental health. So I thought that was um, quite interesting. And he shared also about rituals. Uh, He talked about the tennis player, uh, Rafael Nadal, and how he does a certain setup with his water bottles and the way he wipes things down and everything the same way when he's uh, uh, playing a match of tennis and other athletes like a swimmer who flails their arms eight times and hits their their head eight four times and checks their goggles four times something like that And, and that ritual can actually help them kind of focus or get into that zone and so I think there's an interesting border that we have to be aware of that sometimes that can lead. And he talked about obsessive compulsive disorder, that those rituals try to give us a sense of order and control on the outside. And that's what he was talking about here. But sometimes obviously that goes into overdrive. Uh, And to me, this is yet another reminder how often mental illness or what we define as mental illness is an exaggeration of something that is actually quite healthy and normal and natural. But now it's to an exaggerated effect that actually hurts us and harms us. Even things like uh, anxiety, we all have it, but an anxiety disorder would be one that it becomes so severe that it uh, hurts you or interferes with your life in some way. And so uh, I'll wrap up talking about the book, but as I mentioned, a very interesting look at different research on the inner voice and how um, we all have one, but let's see how we can use it more to our advantage. And the end of the book has a little 10 page, if you want to call it a summary, but he says tools that goes through the different um, ways that we can help reduce chatter to reduce this, this, uh, Um, inner voice from running amok and hurting us and different things you can do from personal things you can do to things that involve others that I've touched on and also things that involve your environment as well. So um, highly recommend this book. Uh, Just came out last week, but I hope you'll check it out. It's Chatter by Ethan Kroos. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I was talking about the book Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It by Ethan Kroos. And to end the show, you know, we think about this inner voice. Um, of course, it's complicated to think of how it's created or how it comes comes about. But one thing we have seen, and I've talked about this in other books that I've talked about and a way it, it showed up in this book as well. But our inner voice is shaped very much by the people around us. And most importantly, it comes from or it's shaped by our parents. And so this is a note or some thoughts to for parents to think about when you are talking to your kids. Imagine what voice you would want your child to internalize. So I very often when I'm seeing a client in therapy, they will talk about their parents and sometimes they'll talk about things they dislike about even their parents. But when we look at their inner voice, we'll see that it's very much similar to their parents. So they'll talk about how critical their father is. 
And then when they look at their own inner voice, or when we look at their own inner voice, we'll see how critical automatically it can tend to be. So I always ask parents to think about this. The way you talk to your child now will influence the way your child will talk to him or herself for the rest of their life. And to be very aware and mindful of how you talk to your child, both in the content of what you say, but in how you're expressing as far as the kindness or the anger or the meanness in what you share with your children, because they're going to internalize that voice and talk to themselves. It's very sad. The parents could be out of the picture. The parents can even be dead and I'll be working with someone and they still, unfortunately, it'll be hard to turn that voice off. And unfortunately, at times you can tell, well, this is kind of the voice of my mother or my father or someone else. But a lot of times it becomes so internalized that it just feels like it's your own inner voice. And it feels like some kind of truth. If I am upset with myself, if I'm disappointed in myself, if I'm angry with myself, it makes us think that, well, this is some kind of truth. Of course, this is the way it is. Now, this brings up some issue that people have or sometimes you know we deal with a lot of paradoxes where we think well should we be loving or is there also of course something like tough love and where do we draw that line or another way of looking at that is sometimes people think well either you're hard on someone and you tell them what's wrong and you're being very critical or the other extreme is you are just coddling them and letting them do whatever they want and telling them whatever you do is perfect and amazing and is and is as is often the case, it's neither one of these that we should be striving for, striving towards. We want to find some balance and recognize that love or showing love to someone, it doesn't mean that we tell them everything they've ever done is perfect and nothing is wrong or bad. It means that if I genuinely love you, I want what is best for you. And actually what's going to drive what I am saying to you and how I am trying to teach you or help you develop in this life is to grow in the ways that are most important or to be growing with values that will guide you in your life. The problem is I often talk about the pain prevention philosophy of parenting, which is the thought that all I'm supposed to do is make sure my kid doesn't feel any pain of any kind, any discomfort, any kind of pain, anything that they don't like. And this is actually very unfortunate, but it's what drives a lot of parents in their decision making. My kid doesn't like that. They don't have to do that. Uh, the teacher said my kid did something wrong. No, it's the teacher's fault. I'm going to go talk to that teacher. My kid doesn't like this assignment. I'll find a way for them to get out of it. And parents can feel very proud of themselves or feel very good. Oh, I prevented this pain. I prevented that pain. I'm a good parent. But we have to shift this perspective. It's not just pain prevention. You're not supposed to prevent pain. You're supposed to promote growth. So yes, there are unnecessary pains that we want to prevent. And as I talk about, we have to distinguish between pain that is damage and pain that is growth. And it's not always so black and white, but it's something we want to be very mindful of, even in our, in our own lives. And the analogy I use for this is if you're working out. So let's say you're doing weightlifting. Now, if you're lifting weights, you can sometimes lift weights with bad form or maybe too much weights, and you could damage ligaments or tear muscles or do some types of pain or experience some types of pain that actually are damaging 
that's damaging your body, that's injuring your body. That's not good. So that pain, if you feel that, and if you can recognize that it's damage, you want to stop it. But on the other hand, if you really are working out and doing a intense workout, you will have some pain that is the pain that through working out leads to growth. And so you have microscopic tears in the muscle that then get rebuilt, and that actually leads to you being stronger, building muscle. And so if you avoided that type of pain, you would actually never get stronger. And so the same thing is happening with our children. If you prevent all types of pain from happening in their lives, then they actually will never grow and will never become stronger, and they will remain weaker than they need to be. Sometimes I use a kind of an exaggerated analogy that if you, let's say, a father or a mother, I love my kids so much, they say, I will never let him walk. I don't want to ever have to let them worry about taking a step or getting tired walking. Let me just carry them everywhere. So from birth till age 12, 13, they're, they're carrying them. And even they might think, I'm suffering to carry them. It hurts my back, but I don't want my kid to ever have to feel pain or experience exerting themselves. You might think that's love, but you're actually hurting your child so much. Now your child is a teenager and they can't even walk for themselves. They have not developed the strength to carry themselves, the strength to walk forward to take care of themselves. Is that actually love to prevent them from growing? Not at all. And so this is where we have to be very aware of what we are doing. Are you trying to help them grow or are you trying to stop them from growing and not realizing that that's what you think is love? So I always ask parents, and again, it's also for ourselves as well, looking at every aspect of life and looking at the aspect of your child's life and seeing, is this pain or discomfort that I'm feeling damage or is it growth? Because unfortunately, I've also seen people use this in the wrong way. They're in a romantic relationship that's abusive and toxic, and they think, well, yeah, it's hurting because love is difficult or this is how you grow in a relationship. No, that toxicity, it's like poison. It's hurting you and it's damaging you. It's not leading to growth. But again, sometimes it's not so black and white to know what is going on. But so coming back to the parents, when you are dealing with your children, having a loving voice or have helping them to internalize that loving voice, it doesn't mean tell them everything you're doing is good. You don't have to do any work. No matter what you did, it's okay, because that's not even loving. And imagine if we do that to ourselves. Oh, you don't have to worry about going to class because you're good. You don't need to take care of yourself in any way because you don't like how that feels in the moment. Essentially, what you're teaching your child to do is just not delay gratification and get addicted to the immediate gratification. Uh, you know what? I don't like that. I don't want to do it. That doesn't feel so good. I don't want to do that. So parents will sometimes come to me and they say, my child is having some issue with their teacher and we are going to go talk to the teacher and we don't want our child, you know, it's going to make him sad or she's not going to like this. So I don't want them to have to go talk to the teacher. But this is the type of discomfort and pain, even in the moment, that actually be so meaning for your child to go through, to go sit with the teacher and have a conversation. It might not feel very good in the moment. It almost definitely won't. Does any student want to go talk to a teacher and if they had a bad interaction? No, they'd rather avoid it. So in that moment as a parent, you might feel very good because your child says, oh, thank you so much, mom, or thank you so much, dad, that you went for me and I don't have to deal with it. But you have to ask yourself that thank you. Is it really coming from a place that's actually best 
for your child. Sometimes in genuine love, we actually might have someone do something that doesn't feel so good in the moment. And we have to recognize that that's the more loving thing. Now, you don't have to tell them, you have to go talk to your teacher, I don't care. You can still say it with love and say, you know, I know you don't want to talk to your teacher because it might be uncomfortable, but I think it's really important that you do talk to your teacher because you and him or you and her had a bad interaction. But I think you know your teacher is a reasonable person and I know you're a good person. And I think that together we can come to an agreement. I can support you if you want, but I believe that you can handle this. So loving our child in that moment, it doesn't mean we're going to just take away the pain and take away all the things that don't feel good. We're actually going to help them grow. And so if we can help the child internalize this voice, that will help them carrying forward in their life going forward. Unfortunately, what we see very often is the voice that children have internalized is the voice of the parent telling them they're not good enough, punishing them. So sometimes parents think, you know, this is a very common Persian type of parenting philosophy. Um, even they say comparing them to the kids of others, so the, the children of other people, essentially. And it's that we think that we're inspiring them to keep trying to be better or we're inspiring them not to settle, to think, oh, I'm already good enough. So we have to keep comparing them to someone better than them. But unfortunately, all you're doing is now internalizing that voice in your child to always compare themselves to someone better. Of course, with social media, that becomes very easy. But even if without social media, we'll always look for someone better or some way we could have been better and we'll never feel like we are good enough. So what you actually would want to do is to give your child that feeling that I love you and you are good enough. It doesn't mean everything they do is perfect and they've never made a mistake, but give them that secure feeling that you are good and lovable as you are. And then hopefully they will internalize that voice if you keep showing it to them, repeating that to them. And when they love themselves, they actually will want to do the better things. So sadly, very often parents think being critical is going to help their kids grow, which yes, that does feel like pain, but that type of pain tends to lead to damage by telling them they're bad and they're not good enough. That doesn't make them feel better. And so many of us who could say they aren't critical to themselves sometimes, putting ourselves down, beating ourselves up, telling ourselves, why did you do this? That kind of relates to this book chatter that I talked about tonight. That's when our inner voice goes in the wrong direction. But we can think as parents, what type of inner voice, what type of legacy do I want to lead or live, uh, leave for my child? And that's very much affected by what you say. And of course, this doesn't just involve parents. I think they have such a big role in the inner voices of their children. But us as individuals, we affect people by how we speak. The things you say to the people around you, your loved ones, husband, wife, family members, they internalize those voices as well. We are all affected by these things. So I think it could be a reminder to think about how is it that we're going to talk to one another? How do you want to talk to your friends and loved ones? And how would you want them to internalize your voice and incorporate that into the ways that they think about themselves? Now, changing that inner voice is very hard. This book, Chatter, talks about some tools that you can use that I think are really wonderful in helping us 
um, deal with issues related to the inner voice. But also sometimes when that deeper inner voice that I was talking about can be so critical or negative or tends to be that way, that can be a lot harder to change and might take some time. Therapy is definitely one way to do that in working with the therapist, slowly reworking and changing that automatic reaction you have to things, but that does take time. So it's interesting or easy to think, okay, if your voice is negative, just make it positive. But unfortunately, as I was mentioning before, that inner voice can feel very automatic. You do something and you say, well, how could I not be upset with myself? I messed up. It feels very automatic. That's what makes it so hard to change. Usually those types of changes do take time, but we can start to slowly recognize that we can be more loving towards ourselves. Uh, I mentioned actually during the the commercial break, someone asked, there's this book, Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff. I think that's a very good book, but I'd also highly recommend going to therapy to help rework some of those things that come up automatically. And what'll happen is it won't change all at once. Sometimes we think I'm gonna go to therapy and we're gonna have this aha moment and everything changes from that moment forward. Well, that really almost never happens. What usually happens is slowly, things start to change. So the therapist can also serve as part of that inner voice or that internalizing inner voice, as can other loved ones. And slowly we can start to change that inner voice and hopefully make it more loving and work for us and uh, not against us. But again, I'll, I'll close by saying as parents, think very carefully with how you talk to your child. Would I want my child to continue talking this way to themselves for the rest of their lives or not? And everything you say and how you say it will be part of that voice that they internalize. So we want to take that role and that responsibility very seriously. Okay, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Again, the book of the week for this week is Think Again by Adam Grant. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.